you can have an agenda focused on civil rights and racial justice and you can miss black girls. You can have an agenda focused on women's rights and gender equity and you can miss black girls. You can have an agenda focused on all the things that young people need in this country and miss black girls. It is only when you are considering the livelihood and identity of black girls that you can shape a world for black girls. Hey everyone, this is your host, Samantha Williams, and you're listening to Inside Global Girls Education. In the United States, Black girls are often marginalized in schools and society due to bias and systemic racism. Research over the years has shown the dangerous effects of adultification bias, where Black girls are assumed to be older and less innocent than other children. There is also notable school pushout where Black girls receive a disproportionate share of punishment and expulsion in schools, including being six times more likely than their white peers to be suspended. It's such an honor today to have Kalisha D'Souza figures of the White House Gender Policy Council shed more light on the plight of Black girls and why it matters. Kalisha, welcome, and thank you so much for making time for this conversation a conversation that focuses on Black girls and equity, racial equity, gender equity, and education is um, the type of conversation I I wish I could have every single day. So thank you so much for having me. It is truly our pleasure. Um, And I mean, as you you said, you've been having these conversations for a long time. You have had, you know, built your career around... um, thinking about and researching and talking about Black girls. So how did that start? How did you get into this work in the first place? I think it's just who I am. Um, I am the daughter of two Haitian immigrants. My grandmother came to this country as a young woman uh, with three daughters coming um, before she could bring them and setting up a life here and then finally bringing them to the U.S. and then dealing with all of the educational barriers and economic security barriers um, for her family in order for them to have a successful future. So my identity as a, a Black woman who still holds on to her Black girlhood um, as you know the daughter um, of immigrants, um, it's how I show up every day. And I think the journey of my grandmother and my mother and, and the journey of my father, too, who immigrated um, from Haiti to the United States in his early 20s, they kind of built in to the fabric of our family this understanding that we always had to have a really laser focus on equity and what equity meant, right? My, my parents worked really hard so we can um, live in a house at the end of a cul-de-sac and, and go to good schools and have access to opportunities. Um, and we're so grateful for that, but it also meant understanding that inequities exist in systems across this country, in neighborhoods across this country. Um, and for me, I always saw myself and my career as having to be a part, even if it was a small part of that solution. Um, and so when I began to see things, right, when I began to be really mindful of the schools that I was able to go to and the schools, what, you know, what kind of school, school is every Black girl across this country able to go to, right? When I began began to be really mindful of neighborhoods and how your zip code could impact what your future job was or what school you went to, how you got an education, your safety, um, that became really important to me and working on those issues became really important to me. Why do we need to have a conversation that 
focuses squarely on Black girls and really centers their needs and experiences right now? Why do we need to have that conversation? Yeah, I mean, um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw gave us the language to talk about intersectionality, which comes from Black feminist scholarship and um, which really understands specifically, um, you know, the inequities and discriminations that Black women face, right, um, at the intersection of, of racial justice um, and gender justice, you know, racial inequities and gender inequities. And I think when you think about girlhood, when you think about young people, you're adding an additional layer to this piece around intersectionality sectionality. It is not just um, the pieces that they face because they are Black and because they are female. It is also because they are young people, right? And young people face vulnerabilities. And, and you can't add the sum of, you know, their gender and gender identity um, with their racial identity, with them being young, in addition to a number of other factors, you know, their immigration status, um, whether or not they identify as disabled, um, you know, their sexual sexual orientation. It's not the sum of these different things. It is their experience at the intersection of all of those identities, which all present unique obstacles and vulnerabilities. And so when we think about Black girls and when we think about, you know, considering at, at least those three intersections of gender and race um, and youth and girlhood, in addition to other identities, you're really talking about population of people who are incredible and innovative and who can thrive um, in different environments, but who also face some real barriers, right, to safety, to opportunity, to leadership, um, that we need to understand their identity at those intersections in order to have policies that address those barriers that they face. You could have an agenda focused on civil rights and racial justice, and you can miss Black girls. You can have an agenda focused on women's rights and gender equity, and you can miss Black girls. You can have an agenda focused on all the things that young people need in this country and miss Black girls. It is only when you are considering the livelihood and identity of Black girls that you can shape a world for Black girls. Mm. Mm -mm. And but why do you think people miss that? Um, I mean, I have, I have some ideas, but I mean, I'm curious from, from your perspective because in some ways, it's, it seems so obvious. Um, and yet, as you said, not only can we have those policies that miss Black girls, but we do. We see it all the time. Are people purposefully missing it or do people not really understand um, the, the real implications of intersectionality and of intersecting identities? Well, it's so deeply embedded in our history and Black girls face that in a at least triple way, right? Um, what's embedded in our history is that you know, young people have less of a voice. It's we see it in the decisions that they're able to make and literally in things, you know, such as voting, right? Let's just take voting as an example, right? Young people, and for reasons, you know, around science and brain development and making formative decisions, have less of a voice in society, right? That is true of young people, right? Historically, women have had less, women and girls have had, because of their gender, have had less of a voice in society, less participation in democracy and the economy and politics and leadership, right? 
And then Black folks in our country have had less of a voice, you know, rooting to slavery where they were literally not even counted as people, um, have had less of a voice in society. And so historically, we are talking about a population that on at least three accounts, right? This is history saying they have less of a voice. And so you have the culmination of that um, and you have systems that have that in their fabric, right? And now they're being asked to see Black girls, and that is a muscle that they need to develop, right? We see that it's it's a muscle that they, needs to be better developed in order to meet the moment for Black girls. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of folks are thinking about right now a lot, everyone's thinking more about sort of health and um, you know, in light of the pandemic and the disproportionate impact on on black communities. Um, and I want to I want to talk about that and about girls coming out of the pandemic in particular, but maybe also just to help frame up for people who are not um, as aware around some of the the particular issues that black girls might have faced uh, during the pandemic and more broadly related to health equity in this country. Could you share a little bit more about that connection? So you've had an economic crisis that has disproportionately impacted Black women and Black families. And this is not only uh, just because of the uh, virus itself and the pandemic itself. It's about what has been in place, right, for a long time. We're talking about things like pay equity. We're talking about access to good jobs and to equitable wages. We're talking about um, not only the discrepancy of real-time wages that we know that Black women have in comparison to their white male or other uh, women counterparts, but we're also talking about what that means over decades, right? The loss of, uh, of wages, the loss of savings, um, the inability to build wealth. So you've had that um, additional layer of just the economic impacts um, on top of the health disparities that have impacted Black families and communities. And then at home, you have Black girls who are experiencing this within their homes and who are also trying to juggle um, schools and moving to online schooling um, and what that means for them at the intersections of their identities. You know, Black girls and, and young women often play just such a critical and important role in their household. So what does it mean when you have parents who are now essential workers um, who are leaving, you know, other families in the neighborhoods who are going out for essential work no longer have care because childcare facilities and schools are shut down and black girls as young as eight or nine or 11 years old are babysitting, are helping siblings with online schooling, are taking care of, you know, elder uh, parents and grandparents in multi-generational households, all while juggling school, all while, while thinking about the additional layers of their own mental health. Um, these are really, it's really painting a picture of the unique um, way that, you know, COVID-19, right, for a Black girl dealing with school, dealing with additional caregiving responsibilities, dealing with a parent losing a job or even having lost the life of a loved one because of this pandemic is really just facing a unique circumstance. Mm. And I think, I mean, I think we know and we've seen that very few people are getting the support and the um, acknowledgement and sort of the help, the, the actual tangible help that they need to cope with this. But I would imagine that that's even more true for, for young Black girls. 
But, you know, what does need to be done in order to support girls who have gone through all of this over the past year? And, and maybe no one knows. Maybe, you know, their, their teachers don't know, their schools don't know, or no one recognizes what they have been asked to bear during this pandemic. How do you support them through that? It's got to be a lot of education on um, the uniqueness of what Black girls have faced. There has to be an understanding of what they faced um, at the intersections of their multiple identities. Um, There are conversations and things that need to be elevated. And I think those things become elevated when you listen to Black girls. At one point in time before coming back into government, um, you know, held some listening sessions with Black girls across the country about both uh, what they were facing with COVID-19, and this is probably a couple of months after the pandemic uh, broke out, uh, as well as what they were facing with this reckoning and this moment um, around racial justice uh, that has happened with the killings of Breonna Taylor and of George Floyd and so many others, right, that um, led to this moment of of real just unrest in this country around uh, racial equity issues. And and these are the things, you know, that Black girls spoke about, right? They spoke about uh, mental health and access to mental health. And so we need to understand that that is a need uh, going back into schools, that girls have identified that they need stronger access to mental health um, services. You know, they've spent a long period of time with overwhelming demands and with less um, ability to have support from social networks, which you know is so important to young people. Um, we need to elevate conversations around what trauma-informed schools and trauma-informed education looks like, right? And these aren't new conversations. These are conversations that we've had before this pandemic when addressing the unreasonable, um, disparate school suspension and expulsion rates that Black girls were facing in comparison to girls of other races. Um, Black young people in general, Black students in general, face these um, disproportionate rates of school discipline, but we oftentimes leave girls out of this conversation. So what does it mean to have trauma-informed approaches to understand um, the science behind ACEs and adverse childhood experience? And we know that with additional adverse experiences that young people face in their lives, it impacts how they show up and are able to show up in classrooms and they need trauma-informed approaches to discipline to understand that, right? Um, And so now you have a pandemic that has led to those additional instances of losing a family member, of a parent losing a job, right? Of these adverse childhood experiences that are going to have an impact on girls when they return to classrooms. We need to include girls and young women in conversations about our care economy and our care infrastructure. And it's so incredibly important that we're talking about these things and we're not just thinking about infrastructure when we talk about roads and bridges, but we're really thinking about caregivers in our country, you know, disproportionately um, women and girls of color um, who have really borne the brunt during this pandemic, but we need to see girls in that too. We need to see um, the babysitting that they've been doing, um, the elder care that they've been doing. Um, We need to look at, you know, the Institute of Women's Policy Research, published research on 16 to 24 year old young women and how they have been impacted in the labor force, right? And so we need to be able to see that too. We need to elevate girls across these different policy conversations to really um, imagine and think about what a world looks like on the um, you know, back end of this pandemic for them. One of the areas that I really want to talk to you about, because I think it's important for people to understand these biases that are held against Black girls 
And, you know, one of the major ones is this concept of adultification and the adultification of black girls. How would you explain that to people who are unfamiliar with that concept? Yeah, and I a huge hat off to Jamelia Blake, Dr. Jamelia Blake and um, researchers over at um, Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality, um, Rebecca Epstein over there who spearheaded a lot of this research um, on the adultification of black girls specifically, right? We had adultification um, research uh, prior to that left black girls out, right? Young people overall, black children are adultified and you have a unique dynamic for black girls, right? And what we're talking about here is just the loss of the ability for girlhood, you know, the ability for black girls to be girls. And we see it in the language that we use, um, you know, thinking that black girls are in less need of protection and nurturing, that they know more about adult topics, right? We see it a lot in the sexualization, right, of black girls. And this is not talking about 13 and 14 year olds. We're talking about you know, Black girls as young as five, six, seven, eight years old who are losing um, the ability um, of society, um, people across communities to see them in their girlhood. And that has implications for them, right? It has implications on how they are disciplined in schools. It has implications for what things look like when they have a run-in with law enforcement. It has implications for how they're treated in a foster care system or in a group home if they're seen as more adult-like and less in their sort of girlhood. The true essence of adultification, um, you feel it in your soul as a Black girl or a Black woman who understands Black girlhood. You feel it in the interactions, you feel it in the looks, you feel it in um, looking at yourself in comparison to um, a white girl, you know, in, in your class or in a, a peer network. And you, you, you know that you're seen a little bit differently and that has implications and consequences. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes looking out at the news, you see stuff, you know, around young Black girls, I mean, as young as six, um, having encounters with um, with types of law enforcement in schools and their communities, and you're thinking, there's just no way this would happen to a six-year-old white girl. Um, there's no way this should happen to a six-year-old child of any background. Um, and yet, I think there is still outrage when when those stories come out, but also a little bit of normalization. And, and that's why this idea of adultification is so damaging, because if it becomes normalized and accepted, um, then how, how do we stop it? And how do you prevent girls from internalizing anything about themselves when they're having these types of experiences? Um, being so young and having your first experience uh, with being detained or handcuffed. And I can't imagine what that would do to, to any child. Yeah, and it, you're right. And it goes back to, in so many ways, um, a lot of adultification bias being just so deeply embedded in our institutions, in the way that everyday people think. And so it's really elevating what it is, where it exists, um, and being able to train folks who are making these decisions, educators, law enforcement, security guards, folks within 
um, systems, the child welfare system, the juvenile legal system, to be able to have them understand when that bias arises, right? Um, we, we all come to the table with different biases, and it's about understanding how it exists and not only understanding, you know, the implicit bias, the adultification bias, but really also understanding systemic racism, right? Those are two different things. And I think, you know, we cannot just uh, focus on biases that exist. We also need to understand the ways that, you know, systems and institutions are embedded in, in, in racism and are embedded in sexism and what that means for Black girls in particular. So it's a both end of thinking about our systems and it's a both end of thinking about individual bias and when it shows up and having folks understand the risk that they put Black girls in, right? That each encounter um, is an erasure of Black girlhood, and that has consequences um, on Black girls and on Black women. And if we could, if we could talk about that for just a, a little bit longer, because I think one of the things that's important to highlight is that Black girls are not. This is this is not the same thing as saying that Black girls dress a certain way or behave in ways that are more adult. This has nothing to do with who the girls actually are. It has to do with the way adults, people in society, see and frame and envision the girls themselves. So, so and that probably is, is much more related to the structural things that you've named. In the going back to the context of schools, I, I think that's also related to another concept of you know that around push out and the disproportionate rates in which black students overall and black girls in particular um, are either moved into suspensions or other ways of being actually kicked out of school or just encounter harsher punishment in general. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit because I'm sure you saw it while teaching and also, you know, it's a, it's a big issue around this idea that Black girls are receiving such disproportionate punishment. What are the roots of that um, showing up in our education sector? Not not tied to adultification. I think we see push out as one of the consequences, right, of adultification bias that is happening, um, you know, in schools throughout our country. It's a dangerous thing in a number of settings. One time engaged when teaching high school in this very spirited conversation with my students, and we spoke about my education versus theirs and, and some of the obstacles that I felt as a Black girl, oftentimes going to school in predominantly white schools and all of the sort of day-to-day -day discrimination I felt in literally seeing how a teacher responded to me as the black girl versus the white girl sitting right in front of me, literally seeing how um, exceptions were made or second chances were given. And then thinking about, you know, all of my students who I taught in my time as an educator who never really had that day-to-day -day comparison because they were only ever going to school with Black children. But the comparison was so much you know, larger. It's not something you could see on a day-to-day, -day, but when you step out and you think about um, what they're experiencing in their schools with 100% Black children versus what you know, uh, you know, a white child in a suburb 45 minutes or even right in the city uh, in, in a school that is differently resourced and differently populated experiences, right? And so you see see those two very different in the experiences of a, a Black child experiences of just discrimination, right? 
So when we think about the push out of Black girls, it is so tied to schools and teachers and educators, but schools also. I want to talk about not only the people and the educators, but the the systems in and of themselves, seeing them as more deserving of punishment, less needing of a second chance, more likely to be criminalized, right? I I taught at a school, a K-8 school, where um, Black girls and Black boys walked around the hallways in bubbles and ducktails. And so it meant that their cheeks were blown out, um, bubbles and ducktails, their hands were crossed, um, overlapped behind their backs. And that's how they walked in the hallway every single day. And it was this cute, you know, framework of let's have kids, let's call it bubbles and ducktails. And it's so adorable. And that's, that's, that's not what it is, right? It is literally a mimicking of people in a carceral state, right? With their hands behind their back, having to walk around in a way where they literally are not able um, to speak. And then you think about, you know, schools across this country where white children or more diverse schools are just um, able to live in frameworks where they have just more freedom, right? And where they're not policed, even in walking in the hallways, right? Where we know that, you know, a child speaking um, or um, touching a peer in the hallway is completely normal for a five-year-old to do, right? The consequence of both of those things then are young people being disengage. It is harder for young people too to miss out on that time in the classroom because of disciplinary actions and then be expected to jump back in and be successful. And when you have that aggregated over time, adultification bias, push out, um, it has real academic consequences for young people. Mm. And exactly. And I think people don't see that because there's a, it can create this cycle of blame where you have young people who are separated from their education, educational journey and progress and disaffected by that and then come back. And, and then I think the, you know, the story that's told is that that leads to further behavior issues and repetition of the process. Yeah. Um, and it starts really young. I mean, when you think about some of the very young children encountering disciplinary systems, um, you know, for doing things that might just actually be normal. You know, a, a, a six-year-old having a, a fit, that that's probably normal. And yet in the light of this system, um, it's seen as disciplinary problem, you know, yeah. or a behavioral problem. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you slow that How do you slow that? How do you stop that? How do you interrupt that, that cycle? It's an understanding, right? It's again, centering the voices of black girls. It's an understanding of um, inequities that exist within our systems, within our education system. Um, It's, it's understanding again, pieces around ACEs and adverse childhood experiences and and what that means, right? I, 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 I remember a seventh grader who every teacher saw her as explosive and just um, such a huge disciplinary, uh, just, just such a huge problem from a discipline standpoint. And um, little people knew that she 
um, you know, lost her father to gun violence, uh, you know, less than two years uh, prior to that year that she was in the classroom, right? What does that mean for a young person, a 12-year-old, to lose their father um, to gun violence and then to return um, to school without mental health support, right? And to have to, um, and, and not having a way at the age of 12 to be able to understand or channel mental health issues, anger issues, right? Um, these are all super, this is all extraordinarily plausible, but we're, we're, we're not seeing her um, for the totality of her experiences, for what she is able to get, the support she is able to get and is not able to get within schools. And we know um, because of, uh, you know, the intersection of different systems and because of systemic racism that Black students are more likely to face so many of these different issues. And then you think about the additional pieces that Black girls are more likely to face, right? When we think about safety, when we think about sexual violence, right? So we need to understand all of those pieces um, before we create frameworks for disciplinary structures that really can have deep consequences on young. Do girls in schools that are integrated have significantly different experiences with this versus uh, girls that are in predominantly Black schools um, in some of our more segregated school districts, do you think? I think it, it they're just different experiences, and I think that they all come with their different trials. As a Black girl, I, I face on a day-to-day -day from a very young age, I think can identify just all of the, like, racism and discrimination that I face within schools, right, in predominantly white settings. And while um, students might not feel that on a day-to-day -day on schools that are less integrated, they are surely feeling um, on the flip side, um, just the deprivation of resources that we see in integrated versus um, schools that are predominantly black students um, and students of color, right? Like I face those day-to-day -day microaggressions and, and racism, um, and I also had access to AP courses and, um, you know, other pieces that that made a difference. There's disparate impact, right, between schools that are integrated and schools that are diverse, schools that are predominantly white versus schools that are predominantly students of color. I think you also see a delayed uh, realization of a lot of that racism for uh, students who aren't going to school um, with white students. So many young people on the who go on to college or university and who their whole lives have been going to school um, just with students of color see at a later age, right? Like I walked into my college uh, lecture halls freshman year, eyes wide open on what racism looked like in education settings, right? And how I might be othered or treated differently. And that realization, if you haven't had it before the age of 18, when you're walking into a, a you know, a college uh, classroom can really create some real obstacles. And I've seen it create some real obstacles for students I've had who have gone on to incredible universities, but have had a crash course on sort of how racism can manifest within and discrimination can manifest uh, within school settings. So I don't think either are, are the like one, one side of the coin is shinier than the other. I think that there are different realities that young people face. I think black students have a different 
um, sense of formed racial identity based off of if they're growing up around other, um, you know, students of diverse backgrounds and white students, if they have only white teachers versus being able to see black teachers, all of those pieces inform our racial identity formation, how we're able to have relationships with people who come from different backgrounds and how we're able to identify, uh, uh, understand, you know, racism and discrimination, right? In your current role, um, which I hope you'll share a bit more about uh, what you do and how do you see the, your ability to have impact in your career um, for for Black girls and on behalf of Black girls and the, and the women that they become? Yeah, and thank you so much for um, us being able to get, I don't know, 40 minutes into this conversation. And now this is an important piece too, and I'll talk more about that. But I loved being able to enter this conversation as me, as the daughter of Haitian immigrants, as a Black woman who was a Black girl, um, and, and speak about that before thinking just about who I am right in my career and the, the work I do in my career, which is also important, but is not the wholeness right, of, of your identity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just want to name that and being um, so important and really allowing me to just step into this as me. Um, so I currently serve as a special assistant to President Biden for gender policy um, on the newly established White House Gender Policy Council. It's really exciting that it exists. It is really allowing a gender equity lens to be mapped across the federal government. And I think, you know, due to the commitment of this administration and also just due to how this council was staffed and the the folks that were brought in, it also um, just deeply understands that gender equity cannot be viewed in a silo, that we need to think about the intersections of racial equity and justice and inequities in the LGBTQ plus communities and what it means for students with disabilities, people with disabilities, workers with disabilities, workers who come from, or students who come from uh, immigrant families um, or who are immigrants themselves, really understanding just what intersectional policy looks like, right? And what building a framework that considers people at their intersecting and multiple identities look like. Uh, So we spoke a lot about systemic racism. We spoke a lot about how it exists across institutions and systems. And here we are talking about the federal government of the United States, right? Which is not exempt from that systemic racism existing, right? And so the biggest push forward is to bring to the table public servants uh, with different identities, with lived experience. I enter this building every day as Kalisha Desus figures, as somebody who in so many ways comes from a history of oppression and oppressed people. And I walk into a building that was literally like when we think about the history of these buildings, um, in many ways where the, the government, you know, was the dealer of so much of that oppression. I hold both of those every day as a government employee, right? Like doing this work. And I do it for two reasons, right? Working in an administration that, um, you know, centers itself around the values that I believe in, right? Um, it, 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 it is not lost on me and, and what it has meant to have um, a first Black woman, South Asian woman be the vice president of our United States, um, or what it has meant to have a historically diverse cabinet with um, 
folks from different communities, whether that is Black, LGBTQ, trans, women of color, Black women, you know, public ser servants and leaders at the intersections of all of those identities. Years ago, I, I got my start in government working for President Obama for the first Black president and the first Black first lady um, of this nation. And I was recently reminded and now remind myself every day that the change that they brought was not um, realized in their eight years and that so much um, of their legacy carries forward, right? Even looking into this uh, administration, right? Even being able to have a gender policy council that unapologetically talks about, you know, the intersectionality of identities and of policy, right? In the work that we do, where we are centering, you know, conversations around COVID recovery, around these economic packages, the American Rescue Plan, the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan around um, women of color, right? That means a lot and it, it takes building blocks to get there. And so to answer your question, the first 40 minutes of this conversation before I spoke about myself as a government employee, I, I spoke about myself as myself, right? And that is the myself that carries forward into White House conference rooms, into policy conversations. It is me. There's not a another clone of me um, for you know who I am as a public servant or a government employee. I come as I am, and I am surrounded by colleagues who come as they are um, in their identities, in their lived experience, in their understanding of policy, in their understanding of what um, communities need to be whole. And that is really the biggest leverage point of what I'm able to do. It is being able to think about who needs to be at the table, who's not at the table. It's being able to organize listening sessions with Black girls to talk about um, what it means to come back from this pandemic because you know what Black girls are experiencing, right? It's being able to, to lead with a framework and understanding of what Black girls and Black communities and Black families need because you have lived that your entire life, right? And so my, I think my biggest strength, when you think about all the things that I've allowed, and there's so many things in the journey that allow doors to be open and, you know, me to land where I am and, and for me, and I'm grateful for that, right? But when I think about what prepares me every single day to do equity work specifically, you know, for Black girls, it's not the college degree or the master's or being a chunk way through training towards a doctoral degree. It's not in the previous experience I've had professionally. It is literally in knowing and understanding my Black girlhood. That is what allows me to make change in this building. And I'll say to take it even a step further, while I can bring all the experiences of my Black girlhood to the table, what I experienced in schools, and that can inform so much, I can't bring to the table um, the voice of, uh, you know, a young Black girl who was trafficked or the experiences of a young Black girl who lived her life, um, you know, between 23 uh, foster care and child welfare and juvenile justice placements, right? Um, a, a Black girl whose parents were um, incarcerated, right? I think my 
crave too is to see us even think in a deeper way around um, what it means to bring diversity and expertise to the table. The person who is the best expert on human trafficking is the person who is trafficked. The person who's the best expert on how we need to reform our juvenile justice system is the person who spent time in the juvenile justice system. A person who is the best expert on our foster care system are young people who have grown up in the foster care system. And so I see that as um, the vision for the future, that we're not just thinking about identities and, you know, check boxes around uh, what people look like and what communities they come from, but truly understanding their lived experience and how they're able to inform policy and trusting that they truly are the experts on those issues. Absolutely. Um, and thank goodness, though, for more people asking, and why aren't those voices here? Exactly. Um, why aren't they here? And how fast can we fix this? Yeah. Um, which it sounds like what you are doing and what we need. You know, I think there's a lot of policy work being done right now with the administration. Um, a lot of, you know, really, a lot of really good intentions that I think give people a lot of hope. Is there anything that you want to highlight um, in terms of the policy work and that is um, that could have a really powerful impact on black girls and black communities? that um, is something that you see as progress and that gives you hope? Yeah, I mean, I think looking at these really bold economic packages that understands the way that Black women and Black families have carried us through this pandemic um, while facing disparate, disproportionate impacts of this pandemic um, really give me hope, right? It's things like the American Rescue Plan that delivered checks and dollars into pockets of families, um, but that also invested in pieces like um, the child tax credit, which is so important to so many Black families um, and children. It's thinking about the American Jobs Plan, which we still need to get, you know, passed and enacted into law um, that really invests, um, right, $400 billion in our care infrastructure. And that is thinking about women of color, Black women as caregivers, and, and really uh, finally um, envisioning what um, jobs that have value and dignity and that um, are paid their worth means for, for Black women, right, and Black families. Um, it's things like the American Families Plan, which makes historic investments um, in education and what that will mean for Black children and Black girls, right? Thinking about universal preschool for three and four-year-olds on the front end, thinking about tuition-free community college um, on the back end to prepare so many young people. And we uh, we know how important things like community college are um, for Black girls becoming Black women to train them, right, for the jobs that, they, that they'll need. Um, it's thinking about the investments in childcare, right? Not only for the many, you know, Black women who are um, childcare providers, but also for thinking about the, the access and affordability of child care, right, and what that means for Black families and Black homes. And then outside of these lofty economic and jobs packages, it's just thinking about all of the work that we need to get back on track across our federal government. It's thinking about places like the Department of Education and how they're rethinking school discipline guidance, right? Um, in 2014, 
um, under the Obama-Biden administration, there was a lot done around thinking about trauma-informed schools and school discipline guidance and collecting data on um, school discipline and, and really shedding light on the disparities that Black children and Black girls face. And, and you know, it, it being not enough to just say, let's return to that guidance in 2014, because so much has changed since then, right? This pandemic has changed a lot. This moment we're in really understanding racial justice has changed a lot. And so what does it mean to, um, you know, craft something that meets the moment, right? And what does it mean to also, and, and the Department of Education is spearheading a lot of this, listening sessions, requests for information from young people, from Black girls to really inform what this needs to look like, right? And so I think about my job on a day-to-day -day on how do we really engage, you know, Black girls across the country in a meaningful way of having their voices heard as these decisions are being made. So I think all of these different pieces, but I think the biggest hope for me is just knowing the folks who are in these buildings across Washington, D.C., the framework that is there to begin to rethink and reimagine what policy needs to look like, what equity needs to look like, right? On the first day, President Biden signed into law an executive order um, that really looks at racial equity, a whole of government approach to racial equity, which was followed by establishing this gender policy council to think about gender equity and gender justice. And, and so equity is, is a framework around equity is really on the front lines. And it's not saying, hey, we're almost there. Let's just get these few things done. It's really saying, we have deeply embedded embedded systemic racism in our country, and we really need to think deeply across all corners of government um, to really address the moment that we're in. To close us out, you know, what is your personal hope and vision for the you know the ultimate vision for 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 Black girls and women in this country that is driving you to make this you know really the the who you are and and how you are making impact in this world. So this is gonna sound really silly and simple, but when I think about an ultimate hope and vision, I literally just imagine in my head, just the sound of ropes hitting the ground and long strands of braids with beads like clashing and hitting against each other as black girls double dutch right on the sidewalk and i hear the music that they're listening to i hear um, them laughing um, other black girls i see them surrounded by black women and i just feel their lightness and their freedom and their ability to be black girls. It feels like the heaviness of the discrimination and the barriers and the obstacles that they face um, at the confluence of so many different systems. It feels alleviated. It feels like um, it is the vision I feel and I see myself in it of black girls just being black girls, being free, being able to just sit in their girlhood. That is the vision that I have for every single black girl in this country, that they feel that freedom and that lightness and that their lives are filled with opportunities and they're not constantly thinking about just the barriers and the challenges and the obstacles that they face and what that might mean for their futures, right? And so I, I say that to say uh, my vision is so focused on Black girlhood and Black freedom and Black joy, 
just the simplicity of that, which unfortunately for so many black girls is so far um, from what they're able to experience, that simpleness, right? Um, and I think uh, having a vision that really centers that joy is really um, the path forward for thinking about what it is that black girls need. I can't say enough how great it feels to have this conversation with someone as devoted and knowledgeable as Kalisha. Truly, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. It was such an honor and a privilege, and thank you so much for having me. I really, and, and thank you so much for centering this conversation and centering Black girls. To learn much more about adultification bias, push out, and intersectionality, definitely check out the links and resources below. And remember, you can always reach us at teachforall.org girls and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Take care.